and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Coach Sam Perrier is the head coach and the director of golf at Howard University. When Coach took over, the program was actually a Division II golf program, but they got a donation, a six-year commitment from Stephen Curry, the NBA superstar, to help fund the golf program at Howard. And since that time, since Coach has taken over, they've really turned into quite a program. So Coach came from Michigan State University, where he helped lead them to a Big Ten championship. And Coach was actually the first African-American head coach in golf at a Power Five conference. He goes from Michigan State to Howard, and as you'll find in this conversation, he really is someone who focuses on his mission and cares deeply about pouring into young people and giving back to people that look like him. 
And golf hasn't always been open to people that look like Sam. Uh, even though his dad played golf at a high level and Sam played golf at a high level, what you're going to find from Coach is he really wants to inspire not just the student athletes at Howard, but to people that look like him to continue to get access to golf and to other parts of our country that maybe they haven't always gotten access to in the past. Coach has a ton of accolades. He's produced one national championship. He's won, as I said, the Big Ten championship when he was at Michigan State. He coached at Stanford where he was an assistant coach. He's gotten two Coach of the Year honors. He's won a ton of awards. And Coach is also an author. He shared an inspiring story in his book, Diamonds in the Rough, which talks about his journey and his journey and his love affair with golf, not just from a golf standpoint, but also a life standpoint and the life skills that he instilled in a lot of young people who otherwise may not have gotten access to the wonderful sport of golf. He's been recognized by several media outlets, including ESPN, the Big Ten Network, and inside the PGA Tour. He has served as a consultant for the movie From the Rough. He has really done quite a bit. He talks about being a grandfather and a father as well in this conversation. So I'm so excited to share Coach with you. So here is Sam Perrier. Coach, thanks for coming on the podcast. And actually, as I say that word, Coach, uh, you've got Coach Perrier on the screen as we record this over Zoom. And it's hitting me that perhaps not all golf coaches uh, in college athletics would go by coach. Uh, and that word coach to me carries great weight and meaning and respect. Um, do, do your uh, student athletes call you coach? Do they call you Mr? Do they call you, you know, Sam, what, what do they, what do they call you? Um, and, and why do they call you that? Yeah. Most call me coach. Some call me coach P. Uh, when I think about the word coach, actually it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. Because to me, in the beginning, if you do the real research, the word coach was really used before teacher. That word was used in the in the beginning and in in really autocratic, uh, I mean autocratic societies where uh, the financial piece was really huge, coach actually meant something. It meant a lot actually. So for me, when you say I'm being coached by a person uh, that does, it does bear a lot of weight because at the end of the day, um, that coach is a mentor, parental figure, uh, sometimes psychiatrist, psychologist, uh, sometimes just a buffer, sometimes just a great pillow to listen. Uh, that, that coach embodies a lot of those, a lot of those at the end of the day. It's interesting. You talk about the origins, the word, I call myself a coach as well. And the origins actually come from a town in Hungary, which is coaches, Hungary, K O C S. Yep. And that's where like the horse and buggy, the carriage was invented. Yeah, exactly. And I love this notion of a coach. Their job is to help someone get from where they are to where they want to go. Right. And the horse and buggy or the carriage or the coach, that's what the role of the coach or the horse and buggy or the carriage is to take them from this destination and bring them to another destination. Right. And as I read your book, uh, there was a acronym that, that stood out, which was Kismith. Keep it simple, make it fun. Yeah. And I've worked with golfers for a lot of years. 
the KISS method, keep it simple, stupid, is something I'd heard a lot of yeah. through the years, but I hadn't seen anything like keep it simple, make it fun. Right. Um, it seems like youth sports, especially college athletics as well, has gotten complicated and there's less focus on simplicity, simplicity and, and fun. And so simple and fun are two words that shine through that acronym. Um, what are your thoughts on the state of sports and our ability to keep it simple and make it fun? I think the state of sports is probably inclusive of the stage of sports. So I think from beginning sports as a youth, as a young person, working your way up to collegiate athletics, to professional athletics, I think they all take on a different meaning. So the keep it simple, make it fun perspective for me is the way the best professionals even look at it. So if you look at your best professional athletes, you look at the Stephen Curry's and LeBron James and some of these kind of people, and you take it down to your college folks that are having a blast, they're keeping it simple, making it fun, but then the only caveat, they pay attention to the details and they take care of themselves in such a way. I think what's starting to really hurt youth sports is that now money has been placed behind some of the youth sports leading to the AAUs, but I think some of the negative now is, based on that, some of the students aren't having fun. Fun has been taken out. And I think when you're six, seven, eight, nine, 13 years old, you have to have fun doing it. And I just don't think at that younger age, you can you see it as a job. You have all of your life to work. But if you're not enjoying something, it becomes tedious and monotonous, and it just becomes overbearing at, at a certain point. And I think right now, some youth sports are going away from the fun perspective and more towards the job perspective, which is really interesting because most of the people pushing were only average themselves. Isn't that interesting? A below average to average person is pushing you to become a professional. It's something that they nine times out of 10 don't have any experience about. It's, it's fascinating. Uh, my son will be eight in December and he loves soccer. So I said to him, I was like, all right, well, I know there's soccer clubs in the area. I've worked with them. I've spoken to them. And so let's, let's go do the tryouts. And we went to three different ones because I wanted to see what they were all about. And the two most prestigious ones or the most highest acclaimed soccer programs. They did not talk about having fun at all. All they cared about was development. All they were talking about was improvement and your kid comes here. We're going to focus on their individual development. They didn't even talk about teamwork and what it's like to be part of a team and uh, how you can work together at something. Only one of them talked about fun. One of the three. And it was um, mind blowing to me that for eight year olds or nine year olds or 16 year olds, by the way, to your point, that fun wouldn't be part of the equation. We play golf, we play soccer, we play instruments. Like play is is a part of it. And you mentioned Stephen Curry. Like one of the things that I think makes Steph great is that when he plays basketball, there's a rhythm to it. There's a play to it. There's a joy to it. Yep. And, you know, in the NBA, I, I've worked with players in the NBA. One of them is playing in the NBA finals. And we talked about playing with joy all the time because the game's, easier if you're having fun at it right. but it is wild i think you hit the nail on the head i think with the money and the professionalization of it and the business side of it 
once that has seeped into our youth sports, it's it's a dangerous place to be in. Well, it is at that age because I think when it, when a young person is seven, eight, nine, ten years old, we realistically don't know what they're going to be great at anyway. And they may be blessed enough to be great at several things. And if that's the case, then if you're putting all your effort into developing them and not allowing their own creativity to come out and enjoy some of the other facets of some of the other things, you may never get to see those other things. You know, and that's where we, I think that's right now what I see, we're really missing out on young kids. I, I really do because we're pushing them away from things based on what we think they should be doing. And I think I'm still an old-fashioned believer that there should be a slight uh, exposure and acclimation to a lot of things before we engage in those one or two that they're specifically good at. Because I really think some of these sports that you're talking about, there's so much more involved in a sport than just the development. I mean, we're talking about life skills you're developing from being healthy, healthier lifestyles, knowing how to eat and train and rest and recover. Those are good, good things, not just for athletes, but for normal people. You know, if you, you know, you start teaching students how to work out, how to keep their spine uh, flexed. I mean, if you talk to doctors, medical professionals will tell you people that have more flexibility. And I've seen these statistics, people that have more flexibility around their spine live longer lives. Well, if you're working with somebody who's never stretched and you're not teaching them to stretch and yet, what are we doing here? We're creating lifestyles. We're creating life skills, supposedly. And also what you're doing too, I, I love what you said a minute ago, they're not talking about teamwork because I think when you're doing it properly, when these young people get older, teamwork is how we survive. Working with your next door neighbor on how to have your yards being in sync, working with the person in the PTA, having, you know, working together as a team, how to raise money for the, the middle school or the high school. All of those things, that's teamwork. And I think youth sports ingratiates the, the entire family to be on that platform to do stuff like that. And I think we really get it twisted when that 7, 8, 9, 10-year-old kid is only focused on going to the NBA and they neglect the other things and they become uh, really sad stories at 25 years old. And even it's like, how are we defining success? So what, let's use Stephen Curry, who's married, has kids, seems like a well-adjusted guy, uh, also plays a heck of a lot of golf uh, and and is damn good at it. And right. I know he's played a big role in in your program. Um, but to me, it's like, what is success? And um, if you're good at executing at something, yes, you can go really far at executing, but then what? Like there needs to be a range of skills and tools that go beyond executing. And I think what you find is people that are really good at executing, A, they might get burned out executing that thing. And B, they have no range to do anything else with that capacity. And make no mistake, I mean, you don't mince words in your book. Discipline matters. And it's important to stay with something and work at something and overcome adversity. We're, I don't think either of us are saying don't work hard, don't focus. Um, but especially when you're talking about young people, having a bevy of experiences and learning from Maybe you do theater, maybe you do student government, maybe um, you do the debate team. It, it doesn't really matter. Like Those are all experiences. And it's interesting living where we live, which is the Washington, D.C. area, which is not a golf hotbed per se, um, but is a hotbed for a lot of other sports. The player that came out of this area in the last 
10, 20 years, and maybe the best player to ever come out of this area played point guard on his high school basketball team, Denny McCarthy, um, and, and didn't even specialize And golf is a sport that I think a lot of people tend to go towards specializing. So even the research, you brought up physical uh, elements. The research says, Hey, do other sports learn from those sports? And I know Denny talks a lot about his competitive spirit from playing team sports and what he learned from that experience. So we could probably do this whole podcast on the state of youth sports. I know you wrote a book about it, um, but let's talk about Stephen Curry real quick because um, his impact on on your life, I would imagine has been immense and you've, you've gotten to spend some time around him. Can you talk a bit about his desire to make an impact in the sport of golf and specifically about Howard? And, and then uh, going forward, we'll get into back into kids uh, and talking about your experience with kids, but talk about Steph and what you've, noticed from him and, and how he operates and how he thinks about things. Yeah, I think, I think right now, and I shared this, uh, I shared this with Rolling Stone magazine a year ago. I think his impact right now in the urban Afri- African-American Brown market is as vast as any impact I've seen. It starts from not only his association with creating a program here at Howard, which he did, but what he's also done with the underrated tour, this underrated tour has taken 30 to 40 to 50 young people around the country. He's paying the fees, putting them on unbelievable golf courses, giving them exposure to compete, which helps them get recruited, uh, which helps them, you know, with some of the other things that you and I have been talking about. And I think right now his role in that is only growing and it's been remarkable. And so as, when you speak with him, you understand that he was raised properly. His mom and dad raised him right. And what you what I mean by that is because he's younger than my brother. And what you realize is, you know, he understood the value of family, number one. He also understood that I call it a performance pie. So he was able to have training time, family time, lifetime, friend time all the different things in that performance pie that were going to help you become incredible. But he also had the influence of mom and of dad. And that's what the one thing he and I actually had in common when we first met playing golf many, many years ago, way before I came here to Howard. And so that being the case, you realize that this, this, this young man is a champion for young people. And it's easy to rally around people that want to change that narrative to make that difference. So for me, what he's done for young people in general uh, in that urban, in that brown and black community, and what he's done at Howard is probably something that should be studied in school of businesses around the country within the next 15 years, I think. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting, as you described Steph, his dad played in the NBA. Um, he would, you would probably classify him as a rich kid. And uh before we started talking, you 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 sort of referenced this idea that rich kids, rich kids and poor kids are not all that different, and we often make this distinction between the two. And it's interesting because I've worked with NBA teams, and there were some NBA teams that I worked with that loved kids who came from humble beginnings, and they would say they have a chip on their shoulder, and you know they have a dog in them, or whatever the phrase they would use. And I would say to them, I'm like, okay, they may have all that. 
but where someone came from is one element of their character and how they exactly. see the world. Kobe Bryant came from, you know, his dad played professional basketball. He grew up in lower Marion, which is an upper class suburb in Philadelphia. And I don't think anyone would describe Kobe as being soft or not hardworking or disciplined right. or gritty and Steph to a certain extent too, or, right. or take Peyton Manning for that or Tom Brady or exactly. I mean, we, we could keep going. Yeah. Serena Williams may have come up with, less than but that work ethic discipline hard work is not necessarily uh taught because of someone's economic status and i've found that to be the case for me like i find myself to be pretty driven and i come from an affluent area with a family of means and and yet when i was a sophomore in high school i got introduced to kids from hd woodson high school um which is in southeast dc and um these kids came to my house and we interacted and for me, a lot of them didn't look like me, but we talked and we talked about sports and we talked about school and we talked about interests. And it was so interesting to me. It was like a transformative experience because these kids were just like me. They weren't any smarter. They weren't any dumber. They, they, they were, they were just like me with one big exception, which is exposure and access. And you mentioned that with Steph giving exposure and access to kids. Um, what I realized was for me, I was going into my junior year of high school. It wasn't about uh, if I was going to college, it was just where I was going to go to college. Whereas these kids who were just as bright as me, it was if I'm going to go to college. And that hit me right then and there. It was like, whoa, 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 we're the same, but the exposure or the access is not the same. Can you talk a bit about how you've seen things, especially from your lens with your background in golf, uh, which is a sport that has been exclusive to a lot of different people. And there are, you know, walls and gates and, and there have been, you know, people weren't allowed into certain clubs. People are still not in, allowed into certain clubs. So can you talk about that dynamic and what you've noticed uh, as far as uh, financial dynamics, racial dynamics that play a role to access when it comes to golf? Yeah, I tell you something funny. I, I give you a real story. So when I was at East Lake in Atlanta, uh, you're dealing with a socioeconomic in that time, uh, back in the late nineties, uh, you're dealing with a socioeconomic family home income in that area of of parents making less than six thousand dollars a year. That's insane. And talked about, I knocked on doors, and this was the impetus for the book, I knocked on doors and told these parents, if you put your allow your kid to come out here and start golf with me, I'll give them opportunity to go to college and do things they've never dreamed about. When they closed the door, I would say to myself, God, I hope this works. <laughs> and so sure enough, a lot of these parents said, okay, they sent their kids out there. And the way I ran my program was the way I was raised. I didn't have a blueprint nor a manual. First tee hadn't been created. None of that stuff. First tee pattern their program for the national first tee after what we did at East Lake. I created that program based on what I knew and how I was raised. My dad had been All-American in golf in college in 65, 1965. And I ran that program the same way, which meant that it didn't matter what you looked like, where you came from. I knew you had to have good equipment. I knew you had. You knew, I knew you had to have a good, good golf IQ. I knew you had to be disciplined enough to be on time. You had to look a certain way. Which, when I say look a certain way, you had to have your 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 
shirt tucked in, your college shirt on, and you couldn't come out there with jeans and cut off jeans and flip flops and stuff like that. And I pushed that on these kids. And I met initial resistance, but they all conformed. And it's the funniest thing happened. These kids start having success like you would not believe. So after eight and a half, nine years of this, I had an opportunity to go coach at Stanford. The, one of the major reasons I went to Stanford was because I had success at Eastlake. And I, from an ego perspective, my ego, I wanted to know, was my success solely based on those kids looking like me? Could I approach those kids at Stanford the same way I approached the kids at Eastlake? The same level of love, the same level of firm words, the same level of support, same level of uh, encouragement. Would it make a difference? Well, when I got to Stanford, I realized it was the exact same. You come at these kids with tough love and just with love in general, and you listen more than you talk. When you listen, you actually hear what you need to hear. And the Stanford experiment was fantastic. I mean, we turned the program around. We won really, really quickly. And so now ego is like, okay, leave Stanford and do it again. Went to Michigan State. Same thing. We won again. So after all this time, I'm thinking kids are the same. We just have to give young people, whether it's Southeast D.C., whether it's Compton, Watts, Southside Chicago, or Winston-Salem, North Carolina, wherever it is, we have to give these kids opportunities to be great. If we give them those opportunities, a percentage of these kids are going to excel in life. I'll never, I'll never say sport because sport is a part of life. They will excel in life, which means they can be successful in the classroom. And I love what you said earlier. Success is not just defined a guy getting all a guy or girl getting all A's. That's success is defined in so many different ways. There's so many billionaires and millionaires right now that were not A students. So in my mind, I realized that, hey, let me give these, let me provide these young people an opportunity. If so, they will have a chance to be successful. So when Howard called, I said, now let's see if all of what I've learned and what I've been taught, I can take to a HBCU and push the things that I know and see if we can be successful. Well, now you see in three years, it works. These young people not only are good students, they're really good players, they're better people. And those that are not successful on the golf course as far as becoming professionals will be a professional at life and something. And to me, that's when you realize this thing really works. And so I pride myself into to being the Pied Piper, the Moses, if you will, of young folks. I want to lead them to the better side. That's my goal. How do you define your own success? That's that. Hey, now you might have just asked me the $25,000 question. Uh, my success at this point is when I see young people that tell me they have a dream. And at the end of their tenure, they have a chance to live it. So in this case right now, if you would say, how can you define success at Howard? When I came in, I, before I took the job, I said, if I can win one of the HBCU National Championships, if I can win a conference title, 
if I at least have one young person that says they want to become a professional and put them in a position to do it, I said I would be successful. I said if I also have the rest of those teams uh, be in a position to help each graduate get a job, I know that I've done my job. Three years later, I've exceeded all those expectations. I deem it as a success. I have young people now that want to play professionally when their time is here. I have a lot of young people that have got great internships and phenomenal jobs. We've won two of the HBCU national championships now. We've won the conference title. As far as I'm concerned, it's been a huge success. About 10 years from now, so let's say June 2033, what, what transpired? Great question. I would say being able to replicate this story, if I'm able to be in a position to help replicate this story in other institutions, potentially to get more kids involved in more communities. Like even right now, I'm at Howard, but I'm working with different people. And uh, I just did this today. Um, there are a couple of kids I met here in the city, uh, young people, 15 years old, that kind of ran afoul, uh, made a couple of silly mistakes in life. I'm trying to help these kids get on the right track and just get decent jobs so they can graduate high school and be a productive person. So every community I go in, I want to do the same thing. Because to me, going to college is not the, does not make you successful. But having a chance to be a productive person means learning how to live amongst others and doing those things necessary to be productive. So learning life skills, uh, working on keeping a clean record, uh, developing a work ethic, being willing to do what you have to do to support you. And if you get older and you have a family, support your family. To me, those are the things that are going to be inherently important uh, at the end of my journey that are going to help me say, Sam, you've been successful. My dad used to always say to me, uh, hey, have you ever seen a Brinks truck follow a funeral procession? I said, no. He said, exactly. There's no such thing. He says, so the riches that you leave on this earth won't come in the form of bills. They come in the form of the spirits and the hearts that you've touched. I live every single day believing in that. You mentioned family. You're a grandfather. What's different about being a grandfather than being a coach or a father? How's that role changed uh, how you interact with people? That's you know, I look at it, I look at it from perspective. Grandparents, in my estimation, are kind of like the 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 guard at the country club before you get in the gate. You know, he's probably the guy, he might look tough and mean on the outside, like he really doesn't want to let you in. But he's the guy that's happy to say, hey, enjoy your day. He's gonna let you in the gate because he knows once you go in, you're gonna definitely gonna leave. And that's how I feel about being a grandfather. Because at the end of the day, you deal with your grandkids, but you know they, they're going to leave at the end of the day <laughs> and they're going back home. So while they're in the gates, you want to make sure they have the time of their life. In part, you want them to have a really good experience so they always want to come back. I love that. That's a cool analogy. And I'm thinking about your world and we've sort of focused on rich kids, poor kids, grandfather versus being a father. But there's another element to your role at Howard, which is that you work with the men and the women. And I know having worked with men's sports teams and women's sports teams and men executives and women executives, that there are some 
distinctions there. And I'm curious for you what that's been like uh, working, you know, across genders and what it's like to work with women and what it might be like to work with men. And of course, there's similarities, but I'd be curious what differences you might have noticed. Well, the first, the the obvious difference, uh, considering I have two daughters and a son, is the emotional piece. You know, I'm not the most emotional guy. Everybody that knows me would tell you that. Uh, but the ladies on the team, they keep me honest. And what I mean by that is uh, they make me see things differently to where, you know, sometimes they might need a hug. And 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 at the end of the day, uh, they need that listening ear because I'm the, I feel like I'm one of the biggest advocates for the woman golfer in the program. Like I'm not going to let anybody come up, come up on her and offend her. I'm the protector, so to speak. I'm the dad away from the dad. It's funny. One of my, one of the girls on my team, she calls me her DC dad, uh, Marley. She calls me her DC dad. She said, my dad is in LA, but coach you my DC dad. And I appreciate that because she knows I'm going to protect her and I have her back and I have her best interest in hand. And at the same time, though, I hold the women as accountable as the men. You're here to win. We're going to do the things that it takes to win. We're not going to cut any corners, so I'm not going to have any slack on you. I'm going to treat you the same way as I treat the guys because ultimately our, our number one goal here is to win. Our number two goal here is to maximize whatever ounce of potential we have in us in the classroom and on the golf course so that we can get we can be the best version of ourselves. I would imagine your parents instilled a lot of that in you. And in the book, you talk about your parents teaching you that it's better to give than to receive. And I'm imagining you knocking on those doors uh, in Eastlake and, um, you know, trying to give to those people and, you know, looking in the parents in the eye and saying, Hey, you know, I want to pour in into your child. Who gives to you? Who, who supports you? Who do you go to for help? Boy, that's a great, holy cow, that's a great question. I would say to this day, I would say my parents, my brother, uh, I'm married now. I got married in December, so I would say, you know, my wife tries to do that. But it's always been for the most part. I spend, you know, I, I, I prescribe to this philosophy of the starving baker the starving baker syndrome. When you go to bakeries around the world, the bakers in their mind are always responsible for making sure everybody that comes in the shop is well-fed and loves the food. The one issue that most bakers face, they're some of the unhealthiest people on the planet. So I fight that a lot of times and I say to myself, I never want to be the starving baker. So a lot of it, I help try to pour into myself as if to say, okay, you're feeding these people. I know you're tired, but you need to go to the gym. I know you're tired, buddy, but you need to, you need to get some sleep. I know you're exhausted and you really don't want to do it, but you need to make sure you eat, eat better. Yeah, you might want a donut and some ice cream. A few more beets and some Brussels sprouts might be the best bet. I know you feel stressed out. What can you do right now to relieve your stress? Well, I, I can write my thoughts down. I can write. I can read because I read a lot. Write and read and exercise. And then I try to surround myself in my village with my with my wife 
and my 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 family and my friends that I know will hold me accountable, be honest, but I also know that they're willing to pour into me. And I think what that has done, that has been able to, I get accused all the time, the students on the team, especially on the girls' side, they'll say, Coach, you, you don't sleep. You need to sleep more. And they're right. I do. But I spend so much time thinking about how to make their, make their lives better that oftentimes I'm willing to sacrifice me to save them. But you're right. That's one of the things I battle the most is how to maintain and develop that balance. Yeah, there's an old adage, you can't pour from an empty cup. And right. uh, I think about that when I hear you. And when I think about people who, who can't pour from an empty cup, in sports, I think of football coaches. And football coaches, more than any other sport coaches that I've been around, eat, breathe, sleep their sport. Uh, there's almost like this idea that you should have a bed in your office and uh, you should be the first one there at 3 a.m. And I think part of it is because they impact the game with every play call and their capacity to actually influence the outcome of a game is, is probably bigger than a lot of other sports, certainly bigger than a sport like golf uh, where you're even limited in what you're allowed to say, uh, you know, when they're competing, you had two football coaches that uh, you looked up to and, and influenced you quite a bit, Bill Walsh and Tyrone Willingham. Can you talk about each of them and how they mentored you and, and how, they influenced how you how you see coaching and and how you see see things. Yeah, I would say out of those two, Coach Willingham has has been amazing to me. And you know, Coach Walsh gave me some what I call you know when I got in the starting block, he gave me some great advice. You know, the first thing I said to him, I said, Coach, I said, um, <laughs> from where I sit, I think you're the greatest coach to ever live. And he started laughing. He sat back in his chair. He said, Well, he said, Coach. I really appreciate you saying that. He said, but I need you to remember one thing. I said, what's that? He said, I'm the same guy that used to coach the Bengals. <laughs> <laughs> and I just broke down laughing. And then he he went through this diatribe of explaining how he coached and how he coached through players. So I took that philosophy and how I interacted with my all of the players I've ever dealt with. But in Coach Willingham for me, to me, have, has really helped stamp and put everything in perspective because at the end of the day, your input and output seem different, but yet they're the same. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you pour bad gas in a really good gas tank, you're going to get a bad result. Even though our, we're looking for the same output, we have to be cognizant of everything involved in that process getting the car to the station, putting the proper gas in, having everything in line just to do it. And Coach Willingham, based on all the different places he's coached and all the success he's had, uh, he is unbelievable to talk to as it relates to keeping everything in a proper perspective. And it's not even about sports. So, yeah, I'm a golf coach. But when we're talking about it, it's about life. And that, that to me, keeps that makes everything go around. Perspective is so underrated. Uh, I just saw a video clip and I tweeted it out a few days ago uh, with Coach Missoula, the Boston Celtics head coach. And we're recording this the day after they lost their game seven game. And 
someone asked him how does he watch movies? Like, what does he do to keep things in perspective as he's going through their playoff journey? And he said, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he just met with three young people that were like 21 years old who were, you know, had terminal cancer and were dying. And he basically said the three of them had so much joy for life and were more focused on their joy for life that, you know, he, that changed his whole perspective about a basketball game. And I think there's a, something that's really important to point out here, which is you can care wholly and deeply for the thing that you're passionate about. You did not mince words. The number one thing they're here to do is to win. We want them winning. And I think once again, we've been harsh maybe on the specialization and the professionalization of sports, but there is on the other side of it, the sort of everybody gets a trophy or, you know, just have fun. Right. And, and don't compete and we're not going to keep score. And I don't think that's necessarily the idea of sport either. The goal is to win and compete and do the best you can and go for it and put yourself out there and be vulnerable. That is what makes sports beautiful. But that perspective piece that uh, coach Willingham shares with you and that coach Missoula shared with the world gets lost for everybody. And by the way, anyone that plays golf understands this because you can be on the most beautiful golf course on the most beautiful day with the birds chirping and blue skies and have an awful experience because you can't hit this (laughs) stupid little white ball that is not moving. uh, And you know how to do it. You've done it, but it's just not working. And if you don't have perspective when you're playing golf, um, you know, you're missing it. I, I often say when I finish a round or I usually say it during a round, Um, people always be like, Oh, how'd your round go? And I'm like, you know, it can never be bad. Like, how can it ever be bad that you're getting to play this game, um, on a beautiful surface and, you know, you have the privilege to play a sport that a lot of people don't have access to. Um, and you can take whatever amount of time it is for some, it's three hours for some, it's six, uh, out of your day to be with friends. And so I would say it's never a bad day if we're out here, like we're all, we're all, uh, lucky to be around each other and, and get to spend time together, but it, we, it's very easy to lose perspective. Um, how do you help your guys still have perspective that they're playing a sport and a game? And by the way, they're doing it at a great university and they're getting access to things that you probably dreamt of as a uh, college golfer yourself while still saying, Hey, let's be hungry. Let's go for it. Let's 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 make it happen and let's compete. How do you how do you blend perspective with also competing and going for it? I say to these guys all the time, you know, too much is given, much is expected. And so that being the case, it allows them and me to keep it in perspective. I mean, the goal is to win. I mean, let's not get it twisted. We're out here to win. But at the same time, it's not life or death. But when you 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 set your mind, if you're truly authentic and transparent and honest with yourself and you set your sights on something if you're willing to put the work in you can't don't cheat me don't cheat yourself i'm not gonna allow you to do it now i'm not a believer in every kid gets a trophy i don't believe in it i think if you're on a team you need to teach kids how to lose kids need to learn how to lose because right now kids don't know how to lose and something in their life comes some adversity comes when they're jumping off bridges and stuff. You have to learn how to lose. Everybody can't win all the time. That's just not how life, life is not meant to be that way.
But at the same time, those those levels of adversity are what strengthens us and makes us stronger and better people, better parents, better friends, better spouses, because we're going to deal with those roller coaster of emotions and roller coaster of hardships and roller coaster of losses. Those are going to make us bigger and better. And so as I'm spending time with these young people, I'm letting them know, hey, we're out here grinding. We're going to do all the things that we can do to win and be successful. But a perfect example would be playing our conference championship at the Northeast Conference in in, uh, in April. We played the best round. Our final round was the best round of Howard Golf in the history of Howard Golf. We shoot seven under. We lose to Long Island University. I told those guys, we didn't lose the golf tournament. We got beat. It's okay to lose when they, they play their best and we play our best. Our best on that day was not good enough. Those guys took it in stride, pulled it back together. We went to our next event at the PGA Works, the HBCU National Championship, and then we superseded our best and doubled it and just blew the field out. And that's when those guys are like, Coach, man, you've been saying this. We could do this. I knew you could do it. But a bird can talk. You have to believe you could do it. And once those young folks realized they could do it, I didn't have to say anything else. I had to just I had to just get on a horse and ride at that point. It's like you got secretariat in the derby. You just ride secretariat all the way to the finish line. I love the idea that success and failure aren't finite, but there is success and failure. And I think like I do think like if you lose something, you know, you, you failed at that. And I think it's important to note that and we make mistakes and we fail in relationships and we fail in friendships. And um, it doesn't mean it's finite, but there, there can be failure and there are successes too. Uh, We have some intersections and some overlap. And um, one of them is Julie Ellion. And so Julie, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't for Julie. Uh, I met her when I was, I think selling ice cream for a, a local ice cream company and trying to figure out my life. And she took me under her wing and mentored me and uh, helped me learn about the world of sports psychology, which led to me going down this deep dive uh, to try to find out how people can be their best and what's behind that. And I really don't believe I'm interviewing you today. If it's not for her introducing me to that world, Julie works with your team. Can you talk a bit about, what Julie does, how she does it, and how she helps your your golfers be at their best. I love Julie. I love her. Love her to death. Uh, it's funny. I got a text message from her this morning. Um, she's incredibly conscientious. I love her husband too. They're, she's she's very very conscientious and then very intentional when it comes to dealing with these folks because she she's that person that she sees the best in you. But she's also willing to be honest with you. And for some of the better players in the program, you know, at some times I'm sure you feel like all is, you know, you're on top of the world. She can keep you in perspective because she's dealt with the best in the world. And so many times in life, I think everybody needs a Julie. Because we need that person when we go out and say, man, we just beat the world. We're the best. And we shot eight under, and they say, well, so-and-so shot 10 under. 
you play really well. You're doing the right thing. Continue the process. Continue to trust the process. But realize we can always be better. But she also has a, a knack of being a very, very good listener. So she can listen to some things that you might not even be intending to, to articulate that may be hindering you from becoming your best. And so when you mix those two together, when it comes to performance-based inductions of what we do, she she's pretty special. Yeah, and those that don't know Julie, I've had her on the podcast. She was one of my earlier interviews. And it was interesting because when I interviewed her, I probably knew her better than anybody I'd interviewed up until then. I was a little concerned that I was going to know too much and that I wasn't going to learn that much. And it couldn't have been further from the truth. And the feedback I got from that episode, many people told me it was one of their favorites. And I think one of the reasons for that is Julie, to your point, is a good listener and she knows how to create space for people to express themselves fully. She's very patient. She's very present. And she also remembers what you say. She gives you her full attention. And that's a gift that we don't always get from people in this world. And and Julie's background in the sports psychology world and, and to coach's point, she's worked with some of the best athletes in the world, certainly some of the best golfers in the world. Um, so she's special, I think, to, to both of us. The other connection that we have uh, is we had Olajuwon and Earl from Eastside Golf uh, on on the podcast. And that's thanks to Jordan Steffi, who also introduced the two of us. It's actually amazing that it wasn't Julie who introduced the two of us. It was Jordan, who yeah. is an ultimate connector and and just a really unique human. And Jordan has also been on the podcast. Um, but Earl and Olajuwon, when you said earlier, hey, we need to dress a certain way. We need to look a certain way. Our sport does have barriers for entry as far as what you look like. Uh, we need to assimilate in a certain way. One of the things I was interested in talking to Earl and Olajuwon about is where is that line of being traditional and where is it to where we can progress? And I think they are in a really interesting space because I think they're pushing boundaries a little bit as far as what it looks like to be a pro golfer or what it looks like to be a golfer in general. And I think that's what makes them unique in the fashion world is that they are adding some much needed, uh, let's call it flavor to the golf fashion world. Um, and they're doing it in an authentic, genuine way. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious about where golf goes. Cause for me, I like wearing my hat backwards and I think it's annoying. I want to be like Ken Griffey jr. And wear my hat backwards. Like that's what I grew up on. And I don't like that. I have to wear my hat forward on a lot of golf courses. And I see when it starts raining and these guys put their hat backwards, I think it looks cool. Um, and yet there's a line there, right? Where I also respect the fact that you got to tuck in your shirt or that uh, there's a certain look that maybe uh, separates golf from other sports. Um, so I'm curious how you think about what those guys are doing and, and what you see the future is from a traditional standpoint and how we can continue to make the game more inclusive rather than exclusive. Let me give you, you don't even notice. Let me give you some insight. So, I used to allow Elijah one when he was a little boy to come practice on my range. That's true, in Atlanta. I've been knowing this guy since he was a kid, helping him with his golf game, the whole nine yards, and, and I watched him grow up. I watched him go to college, and we still have a great relationship to this day. That's how that's how amazingly small this space is. Uh, I'm a traditionalist, though. I'm not a fan of, of the normal guy on a non-rainy day wearing a hat backwards. I just that bothers me actually. 
But I will say this. The space that they've created now with some of the cooler looking gear uh, doing the collab with Jordan Brand and stuff like that is absolutely fantastic. I love what they're doing. But I do, but I do think and I do believe that in life we all have uniforms to wear. Whether people like it or not, people can continue to push the barriers and try to be different and dress however they want to dress. If I'm a pilot, whatever airline I fly for, I wear a uniform. If I'm working for UPS or Amazon or any of these other companies, I'm wearing a uniform. If I work for USPS, if I'm the CEO of the Falcons or the Commanders or the Eagles, when I go into a business meeting, I'm wearing a uniform. My uniform may look different. It might be a nice three-piece suit, but I have on a uniform. In the NFL, when you play, you get fined if your socks and things are not a certain way, but it's a uniform. So to me, in order to live this life, we have to wear a uniform. Victoria's Secret models, in my opinion, they wear uniforms. They're, if they didn't wear what they if if they didn't wear what they wear, which probably isn't much, they wouldn't be considered Victoria's Secret models. That's a uniform. You have to be willing to wear whatever it takes in order to get on the inside to make a difference. So I love what Earl and Elijah have done. I love what a lot of these brands are trying to do right now because I feel like this is now the time where creativity. I love the way young people are wearing their hair different now. Uh, they're doing the different things to express themselves. I think all of that's fantastic, but I still think there has to be a level of conformity because at some point we all are players in a much larger game. The only time that I think that narrative should and can and will switch is when you own the game that you play. When you own the game that you play, then you can change the narrative. Man, that there's a lot there. And it has me thinking about just society in general. And there's value in sticking out and there's value in fitting in. And we have to be able to do both of those. We have to be willing to put our neck out there and stick out a little bit to stand up for what we believe in or to go for it. And then we also have to learn to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And we see this on the PGA tour where guys have individual sponsorships and um, are, you know, focused on competing, but then they have an opportunity like the Ryder cup and you see them come together and you listen to them and the joy that they have, or even the guys that played in the Olympics and playing for their country and how they would say it's the best experience they've ever had. Or you hear it probably in your world where kids come from playing mainly AJGA and individual golf, and maybe they play a little high school golf, but it's not, as competitive for those that aren't aware. Um, a lot of times high school golf is, is tricky, um, but they come to you. I'm sure your guys, when they blew the field away, like the celebration. And I saw the video of them pouring water on, you know, each other and, and celebrating like that sense of belonging. We hear it in fraternities. We, we hear it in country clubs or countries um, yeah. or church uh, religion. Um, like we, humans are designed to be part of a social group and it's immensely valuable that we learn both how to stick out 
and how to fit in. And to think that it's just about individualism, I think it's one of the things that we get wrong about this country. There's this idea that our country is just about individual success. If you really study our country's history, it's always about a team. It's always about a we. Um, and I think it is one of the big misunderstandings of what our country is about that we leave out that, yeah, there is some conformity that takes place. There is some sacrificing of maybe your own individuality to make sure that you're not, you know, sticking out too much and at the expense of your teammates. So um, that's sort of how I hear you. And that's, I think, similar to how I'm thinking about it. Absolutely. Um, last thing that I want to get to uh, acknowledgements in your book, this also stood out. And this was something that was different. It was not conforming. I read a lot of books. It sounds like you do too. And, um, you know, for this podcast, I'm reading, I don't even know how many books a year because I have to prepare to talk to people like you, but your acknowledgement section was in the beginning of your book, not the end. Right. I would imagine that was an intentional decision on your part. Absolutely. absolutely. So why did you decide to have the acknowledgement section in the beginning and not the end? So I think, too many people get caught up in telling their story first. You wouldn't have a story if it were not for the other people. There's so many people that played a part in my life that had I not learned the tidbits from all the, the people growing up at you know the golf course back in Winston-Salem or the mentors or just the friends or my parents and their friends or the experiences if I hadn't had those experiences, I couldn't tell that story because all those different things were essentially cogs in the wheel. I was the wheel. They were the cogs of the spokes and allowed me to roll. And that's what allowed me to make that difference. And I think too many times we we flipped that. We, we reversed that. We think our story is the greatest story. And because of us, those other people are better but I, 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 I differ. Those people, in my opinion, and all those uh, 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 anecdotes or things that we experience are what makes me, me. And I'm quick. I, I'm, I'm very okay with giving everyone else the credit uh, because at the end of the day, I'm truthful. I know what I've done. I don't need the personal pat on the back. But I definitely want to give people their roses while they can still see it and hear it and smell. Well, I'll, I'll say this. I don't know if I'm going to write another book, but if I do, I, I definitely will put the acknowledgements first. I thought it was such a beautiful touch to who you are, how you think, um, and how you see things. And to me, the acknowledgement section of every book is usually the most interesting part where I really get to see who is this person how do they come to be? And we all, to your point, have to wear uniforms and have to present in a certain way and perform in a certain way. But at our core, when I wrote my book, someone really close to me said, Brian, this wasn't a book that you spent four years on. This is a book you spend your whole life on to work. And if I take that approach, yeah, it's definitely not just me. It's all of these people that have poured into me, even like little ideas here and there that have, you know, come to fruition inside me that, those seeds were planted maybe when I was six years old or 10 years old or 16 or 26. And um, I think we're all an amalgamation of our experiences and the people that have, that we've engaged with and, and been around uh, coach. This has been a blast. And I want to just say um, we talked about this before we started recording, but 
Um, I'm a member at a country club and coach and his team are often there practicing and your student athletes, anyone that ever interacts with them, all they do is say how great those kids are. And um, I think it's a testament to your recruiting and, and what you're looking for in those student athletes, but it's also a testament to how you're developing them and, and helping raise them, whether as a second dad or as a coach or whatever it might be. So congrats, obviously, on all the success the team has had on the golf course. But I think we're often, um, our character really shows when we're not uh, on the golf course and maybe we're on the driving range or maybe we're on the putting green or maybe we're just walking in the parking lot. And I'll tell you, your kids, uh, the way that they handle themselves, uh, it's inspiring and uh, not just to me, but my kids and and hopefully they can uh, you know, become, I have a boy and a girl, men and women that are similar to, to the student golfers at Howard university. Um, coach, if people want to follow you, obviously if they want to get the book, um, I know you have a website, uh, where can they do all that social media? Uh, how can people follow along, uh, the Howard? Uh, yeah, the, the easiest piece would be, you can find the book diamonds in the rough, uh, by Samuel Purry on Amazon. That's the easiest way. Uh, or if you just want to follow me on IG at coach P 13, uh, or you want to follow the team at, at uh, H.U. Bison Golf. Uh, and then the last thing I would love to leave you with is I really believe I love what you just said because to me, champions are made on a thousand mornings when no one is watching. If both people live that creed, I think we'll be okay. That's a beautiful place for us to stop. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, LinkedIn as well at Brian Levinson. And we mentioned Jordan Steffi. We mentioned Earl and Olajuwon. We mentioned Julie Elliott all of these people that are past guests. You can listen to those conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Coach, uh, hopefully we can get out and play sometime and you can actually teach me how to hit that that little white ball uh, more consistently. Uh, until then, I'll keep working at it so that I'm ready to to walk the course with you. But thanks for coming on and thanks for all you're doing for the game and also for our community here in Washington, D.C. Uh, really, really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Uh, it's funny how small the world is. I look forward to getting out on the course. Let's play some this summer. That'll be fantastic. Sounds good, Coach. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. A perfect example would be playing our conference championship at the Northeast Conference in in, uh, in April. We played the best round. Our final round was the best round of Howard Golf in the history of Howard Golf. We shoot seven under. We lose to Long Island University. I told those guys, we didn't lose the golf tournament. We got beat. It's okay to lose when they they play their best and we play our best. Our best on that day was not good enough. Those guys took it in stride, pulled it back together. We went to our next event at the PGA Works, the HBC National Championship, and then we superseded our best and doubled it and just blew the field out. And that's when those guys like, Coach, man, you've been saying this. We could do this. I knew you could do it. But a bird can talk. You have to believe you could do it.